Taylor Swift is one of the most famous people on earth right now. And when it comes to her beliefs, there's actually some good reason to think that Taylor has a big problem with God. Last year, Giles Go produced an article for Premier Christianity called The Changing Faith of Taylor Swift. And in it, he reasoned that you can kind of pick up on a deconstruction of sorts that seems to take place throughout Taylor's uh, musical career. Picking up the article, Go says, the most explicit statement of faith from Taylor comes from her Netflix documentary, Miss Americana. We see her in a 2018 clip arguing with her team about making a political statement in favor of a Democratic candidate in an upcoming election. And I can't see another commercial and see her disguising these policies behind the words Tennessee Christian values. Those aren't Tennessee Christian values. I live in Tennessee. I am Christian. That's not what we stand for. This discussion has been sparked by adverts for U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, who has voted against legislation protecting women from domestic violence and believes that business should have the right to refuse gay couples. Taylor says in the clip, I can't see another commercial and see Marsha's policies behind the words Tennessee Christian values. I live in Tennessee. I'm a Christian. That's not what we stand for. Now, the first thing I want to respectfully say is that while I'm sure that Tennesseans by and large are against domestic violence, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the notion of Taylor Swift speaking for, or any particular person speaking for Tennesseans writ large. But we're not going to focus on that. Instead, we're going to focus here on the fact that she affirms the Christian faith. And despite what so many atheists online would like to say, there is a the Christian faith. And you can go back to the early creeds of the early church to find what that is. The fact that there are all these denominations who disagree with each other on secondary doctrinal matters does nothing to refute the central Christian claims uh, around which Christians ha uh, can see each other as united and together doctrinally and uh, believing the central fundamental truths about Christianity. And it's for that reason that when Taylor tells us that she's a Christian, I am Christian. I'm expecting she means that. I'm taking her at her word that uh, she's taking the notion uh, that things such as are true, such as God's existence, that God raised Jesus bodily from the dead, that Jesus is the way of salvation, that you must turn to him, that you must turn from your sins and follow him, that he is God incarnate, you know, stuff like that, stuff that we would consider to be Orthodox Christianity. And so we're, whether her faith has always remained as strong at any particular point in her life, she does claim to be a Christian. And so this is what I'm at least understanding her to be committed to. Now, looking to Taylor's lyrics, we're actually going to let her speak for herself through her lyrics. And we're going to try to understand the fact that th these are song lyrics. And so there's poetry going on and maybe not everything is meant to be taken in the way that we assume. And we understand all of that. But I actually think we see a pattern happening. Uh, the, art the blog article author sees a particular pattern. I, I think that it actually goes further. I think she reveals to us some things about her thinking about God and why he allows suffering, for example that are going to point us toward another figure in the history of Christianity from the 20th century and how his thinking about this may end up overlapping some themes that we're seeing here from Taylor. So let's just go ahead and jump in. We're going to see what I'd like to refer to as external suffering and then personal suffering. And the way I'm using these terms, external suffering would be suffering that's happening to someone else far away, far removed from you. Or maybe it even it's not even that far away, but, but it's disconnected from you. Perhaps in the town you live, there's crime happening and there's suffering as a result of that crime, but it doesn't affect you in the way that it would the people that it's happening to or who are involved in it or who know those people personally or something like that. 
Um, and in a similar way, uh, things that happen far away to someone else on some distant battlefield, uh, we may hurt for those people. It's not that we don't have empathy about those things, but they don't always affect us in the same way that uh, suffering affects us when it's personal to our own life. And so we're going to look at her talking about, Taylor talking about external suffering and then also personal suffering when it came to her front door and how that affected her differently. And we're going to see a little bit about that. So let's begin with the external suffering in the early part of, uh, or, or earlier in Taylor's career. Um, didn't they, uh, the blog article author says, is an unreleased song leaked onto the internet purportedly recorded in 2003. In it, Taylor asks, where was God when 9-11 happened? Here's the chorus, quote, and didn't they call you? Didn't they need you bad enough? Was there some reason I'm not aware of? Did you not write it down? Just one more thing to do. Where were you? Where were you? And didn't they pray too? Okay, that's some powerful stuff. And the blog article author indicates that it probably wasn't released because it might offend the sensibilities of Taylor's then very Christian Southern audience. And so uh, whatever the reason it was dismissed, we can still look at these questions and these ideas and we can see what we can tell from them. Now, one might think I'd have a problem with this, but one would be wrong as the author of the article indicates, that there is actually something like this in the Bible with some Davidic lamentations, some notion of this idea of where are you, God, in the midst of suffering. The Bible wrestles with that question. So the very asking of these questions and wrestling with these ideas, I don't see that as a bad thing. That's not an objectionable thing as far as I'm concerned. Secondly, I don't have a problem with this because she's just asking questions. I hear from skeptics uh, very often when I look at their videos of deconversion stories and deconstruction stories that they felt like in their church or around the Christians they were with, they just couldn't ask the questions that they wanted to ask. They, if they asked certain questions, they were considered that it was considered that they were being somehow less than pious, and perhaps this was an indication that they were in sin or something like this. And I just want to say that asking questions is a fantastic thing. And if the question is, where is God in the midst of some particular issue or uh, instance of suffering. Well, I just want to say that is a question that has been asked throughout history and even by biblical authors themselves, or at least that is hinted at. And so I want us to keep that in mind. Now, she asks in, in the lyrics themselves, was there some reason I'm not aware of ostensibly for the evil that happened? Well, maybe. So when Christians go to answer this problem, the way we answer it is we uh, are what we give are known as theodicies, and you don't need to know that, I don't guess, but it, it is a Greek compound word that is referring to God and justice. How is God just in light of things like September 11th? Like if God's powerful enough and loving enough and knows that it's going to happen, why didn't he jump in and stop something like September 11th? And I should just go ahead and say that um, we would expect that in many, many, many cases, he does prevent evil that could have or would have happened. But you still are left with the question of why did he allow instances of evil that we have? And one of those instances was September 11th. It's horrific evil. I just can't even imagine uh, what people went through and the, and the families are still going through and, and all of those kinds of things. Uh, but I, I think this is, a good question. Was there some reason that she's not aware of? When we're giving these answers of how God is just in light of these things, usually what we're going to point to is some overarching good, some, some greater good, as it's often referred to even in the 
literature uh, that would somehow justify any particular instance of evil. So some people would say that greater good might be some character building that is developed living in a world with pain and suffering. Or it may be that living in a world with pain and suffering that we're able to exercise our free will, but that's going to lead to evil. But at the same time, it's also going to allow for the highest expression of love or something like that. Or uh, God is painting a beautiful picture with the events of the world and there's always going to be some dark corners to a painting. Or... Um, God is preparing us and making us fit for heaven, or God is trying to get through to us like he has a megaphone or something. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But these are all different ideas or reasons why um, people have given for why God might allow suffering. And it has often been said that in a particular instance like September 11th or something, it may be that we don't know the answer as to why exactly God allowed that particular instance of suffering. Based on the other good evidence we have for the existence of God and for what he's like, when we come to an instance where we don't know the answer, we would say something like, well, look, in any particular instance of evil, it might not always be obvious what the answer is. And this strikes back to Taylor's uh, very question. She asks, was there some reason I'm not aware of? Well, very likely there could be some reason that you're not aware of that we we wouldn't expect that you would be able to see what the reason is. We shouldn't always, there are some things we shouldn't be able to expect to see the answer to by just looking at the world immediately around us. It could be that 10 years from now, what is happening now bears out in some story, even in the afterlife, for perhaps for individuals who die, that there is something happening that God has some justification because he's in a position to see all of the chess pieces that we can't see. He's able to see the whole board as it were. And that allows for the ability to uh, do what would seem odd to us. And of course, I'm not the first to say that there are many who have found that uh, have said that parent, what parents do for young children, uh, taking to them to the dentist with pain or something may seem very odd to the young child in the moment, doesn't understand it, can't wrap his mind around it. But to the parent, they realize that, oh, well, actually, this is an expression of love. You know, it's kind of like an example of this that's been given is, well, if you pointed to the if if you pointed to the backyard and you couldn't see, and you looked out the window and you saw the grass in the backyard, but you said, oh, look, there's no worms in the backyard. Well, hold on a second. What do you mean? What do you mean there's no worms in the backyard? You wouldn't expect that just by glancing out the window, if there are worms in the backyard, we wouldn't expect that you would be able to tell whether there are worms in the backyard or not just from glancing in the backyard. And so uh, you'd have to do a deeper investigation. In a similar way, you can't just say when some horrific thing happens, there is no greater good that would justify a God in allowing something like that. Well, we wouldn't expect necessarily that you'd always be able to see what that justifying reason was just from glancing at the situation right here and now. And so I think the answer to that question is yes, there could be an answer that you're not aware of. Now, the next couple of lines really seem to indicate, did, did you forget basically God? Did you not write it down? Um, you know, where are you in the midst of this? Because maybe you just did, forgot about it. Maybe there's more important things to do or something like that. And we're going to come back to that later in the video. So just pocket that for a moment. And then the last question was, didn't they pray? Now, this harkens back to a common um, lay understanding of prayer that does not come from a devoted understanding of scripture, I don't think. Not that I'm trying to criticize Taylor. She's writing a song here. She's just, um, she's just trying to express something quickly with some words that give simple thoughts and ideas for what she's trying to do. But prayer is seen by our culture, at least what the Bible says about prayer. And atheists love to use it this way that, well, it's, the Bible seems to indicate, well, you just ask anything in the name of Jesus. Well, it's going to happen. Dear Lord. Please bring back plastic straw. Guaranteed. Especially if you're asking for someone to be healed, why we hear all this stuff in Christianity about healing and Jesus healed people. And I've heard stories about people that prayed and their church prayed and some woman was healed, whatever it is, you know, something like that. That That's all fine and good. But when we're praying, we are not guaranteed that our prayers are going to be answered. 
So yes, those people on September 11th could have been praying. When the tragedy was happening, they could have been praying. And it may be that God answered some of those prayers. It may be that in God's understanding and his economy of how all of this works, that it wasn't the best thing at that moment to answer that prayer because of some justifying reason that he has. And by the way, if that sounds shocking to you, this is what all Christians are committed to, the notion that God has some justifying reason for allowing instances of evil like these. We pray, we ask God for things. He answers those prayers. Sometimes he gives us what we're asking for. Sometimes he doesn't. Just as when a child asks their parents for something, sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't get it because the parent we hope in each situation will know best. And that's the way that, that we navigate that sort of thing. But notice that this was early in her career, according to the blog article author. And we find that this was external suffering, September 11th, things going on outside of Taylor's self to people that are far away, who she's empathetic with. We all, those of us who are there certainly remember this um, alive and, and thinking as an adult at that time. Um, we remember how horrific it was and how we sympathized and perhaps empathized with those individuals and their families. Um, but it is a bit different when it's someone else somewhere off, somewhere distant. And so it's important for us to recognize here and understand that Taylor is now going to speak about things that are very different in her lyrical content as we move on. Um, she comes to a point where we, she talks about her personal suffering. This is what the article author says. When we listen to Swift today, the perspective of God is, very un, is a very uncertain one. In January 2020, Swift revealed that her mother had been diagnosed with a brain tumor. The song Soon You'll Get Better from the Lover album voices her feelings on this crisis. In it, she says, desperate people find faith, so now I pray to Jesus too. This line shows that, like so many people, Taylor is reaching out to God in a time of crisis. It's a theme that Taylor returns to three years later in her last album, Midnights. Bigger Than the Whole Sky is a song about grief, commonly thought to be about a miscarriage. Quote, did some bird flap its wings over in Asia? Did some force take you because I didn't pray? Now, as we look at this, this kind of presents two different ways of thinking about, this is not the article speaking anymore, this is me now. This presents two different ways of, of thinking about the suffering in the world. Is it happening as the result of a butterfly effect? You know, something uh, that happens on the other side of the world, you know, the flapping of a butterfly's wings or a bird's wings or something. And then that leads to a, a breeze that leads to this event, and that event. And over course of time, it's a causal chain and such that this horrific thing happened in her life. In other words, I take her to mean here, is it just meaningless? It's just the result of random events in the universe, just the cause and effect naturalism that we inhabit in the world that of course, our scientific culture would like to push upon us. Does it mean something like that? Or is there some force? Uh, did some force take you because I didn't pray? Okay, now here we have force instead of a straightforward mention of God. The first thing I want to say about this is back to the prayer issue. Here we have again this notion that um, if you pray hard enough and believe hard enough, then certain good things will happen. And if you don't pray hard enough and don't believe hard enough, then uh, God will do certain horrific events. And the only thing preventing him from doing these horrific events is your, is your prayer. So, for example, Greg Boyd talks about this in his book, Benefit of the Doubt, which if you're experiencing doubt in your Christian faith, I would recommend recommend uh, reading that book. It's a decent book, whether you agree with Boyd on other things or not. And he says, you know, he remembered sitting in a circle one time, and I may get the details of the story wrong, but he said, we were praying about a particular, you know, say Tim. Tim is maybe going to die, and so we're praying that he doesn't die. And so we all begin to pray, and they are emphasizing that you, you need to really believe and believe that God's going to heal Tim and just pray hard that God's going to pray, you know, as hard as you can and believe as hard as you can, because uh, Tim's life is on the line, and how Greg Boyd was sitting there listening to that, and 
and he was thinking about the the carnival game where you take a big mallet and you hit this thing and then the 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 puck goes up this thing to hit this bell and if you don't hit it hard enough it doesn't go up high enough to hit the bell and he's like i felt like i was it was as though god had a gun to my friend's head tim and if we all believed hard enough and prayed hard enough god would decide not to pull the trigger but if but if we didn't believe hard enough so you really got to believe and if i'm not able to muster up enough belief and prayer here well then tim's uh, gone for it. you know I, this this is not the way we're to look at this as christians we're to ask god what we will make our request known to god and then trust him that he will do what's right now you might say well then what is the point of prayer well there's all kinds of points of prayer perhaps it is that there's some peace that god gives you in the midst of that maybe that's your prayer request maybe there is something that god accommodates for you and his plan there's all kinds of reasons why prayer is important and of course it tells us things about ourselves and teaches us things about ourselves god is in control but we just don't see all the pieces and but now we see that this uh, personal suffering has come to her life and we hear a bit more about this when we find out when this crisis of faith if one has happened um, if the article is right uh, when it might have happened. We may have found such evidence, the author says, in the song Would've, Should've, Could've. This song is commonly thought to be about John Mayer, an American singer that Swift was believed to be in a relationship with when he was 32 and she was just 19. The relationship ended unhappily, and while it only lasted a few months, the experience seems to have scarred Swift throughout her adult life. Not only that, but it heavily implies that this relationship irrevocably damaged her relationship with God. In a song jam-packed with biblical references, Swift tells us that if you'd never touched me, I would have gone along with the righteous and you're a crisis of my faith, she says. The refrain, I regret you all the time has prompted intense speculation. Exactly how bad of a boyfriend do you have to be to turn someone against their faith in God? Now, the article author didn't make this division, but we've seen external suffering and now personal suffering. He sums this up with, to me, Taylor Swift sounds like someone who has deconstructed their faith and come out of it not really knowing what she believes. This is not a judgment on her character. Swift seems to still be reaching out to God, and when she is unable to find him, has perhaps tried to find salvation in romantic love. But that's just an educated guess. After all, we are talking about someone's faith journey while they're still on it. It is entirely possible that God isn't finished with Taylor Swift just yet. Now, if the author of this article is right, then notice that this means she was um, far more impacted by her, by the emotional, by the um, personal tragedies that came on her life than she was by the external suffering. And this is really interesting to me because what's happening here is when she talked about 9-11, some horrific things happened on 9-11, but yet she, like the rest of us, was able then to look at that event and perhaps the, the intellectual answers to why God might allow pain and suffering were enough for her. She was able to continue in her faith um, and perhaps she had questions, but it wasn't the crisis that the author of this article seems to indicate came later with those more personal tragedies that came with relationships and uh, death and all of those kind of things. So this is what, when that happened, when those things came to her own doorstep, there was a shift. Now the crisis was deeper, perhaps because um, she didn't expect the force of it. And th this is not something unique to Taylor Swift. In fact, I raise this because I actually think it parallels the thinking of a great 20th century philosopher and theologian, and that is C.S. Lewis. He wrote The Problem of Pain, and he wrote A Grief Observed. He wrote The Problem of Pain, and it was more of an intellectual look into all of these sorts of things, the evidential reasons why God might be just in allowing some particular pain and suffering. And so uh, C.S. Lewis did that work, 
and uh, that was that. It was it was somewhat external to him. The suffering he was aware of, which was horrendous suffering. I mean, he was aware of war. I mean, seriously, think about when he was writing and when he was working. He was aware of all of those things, but it was external in a certain sense, right? It was it was suffering that was hypothetical or it was happening to other people. It was out there. It wasn't that he wasn't empathetic or sympathetic, but it was happening out there. But when it became personal to him, when his wife Joy died, and when he wrote the book A Grief Observed, also on the problem of pain. You know, you have you have a problem the the, uh, the problem of pain, and you have a grief observed, both on the similar subject matter, the the problem of suffering. But here you had this theoretical look at what's happening in the external. Now, this is a sort of a, a psychology of what is going on in the mind of a man who is experiencing the grief. That's why it's a grief observed. And it's really rough. But what, what happens there is we see happening for Lewis something similar to what happens, I think, if this author's, this blog article author's uh, theory is correct or speculation is correct. We see a similar thing happening. The external stuff, that's a little different. The personal stuff, now I can handle that. We can talk about the cold external world and perhaps the answers I've been given satisfy. But when it comes to my own personal life, now it's a whole different ball game and different issues come up and you can have a personal faith crisis. Now, I, I, I say this to Taylor to take up for Taylor Swift to a certain degree because I think this can happen to even the best among us, we might say. I mean, we're talking about none less than the well-known C.S. Lewis here who has inspired many, many thousands of people. So I found this journal article uh, called C.S. Lewis and the Problem of Evil by Samuel Joachal from 2004. And in it, he captures all of this really well. He says, one major theodicy presented in the problem of pain originates, at least to my knowledge, in the writings of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 12, so now, now he's, he's referencing first here C.S. Lewis' book, The Problem of Pain. And, and he's talking about how it parallels the Bible because he says in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul pleads with the Lord to remove his thorn in the flesh. The Lord, however, flatly rejects Paul's request, responding, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 1 Corinthians 12, 8. Paradoxically, strengthened by his own weakness, Paul begins to delight in hardships and in difficulties. Similarly, in the problem of pain, Lewis points to the paradox of suffering, how pain can occasion human responses that allow God to transform people. In one of the most famous sentences of the book. Lewis writes, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain, Lewis continues, shatters the creature's false self-sufficiency. The will must be surrendered to God. The Lewis of a grief observed the second book that he wrote the, the author of the journal article says, on the other hand, wrestles with a pain that shatters more than self-sufficiency. It seems to explode the entire foundation upon which Lewis built his entire theodicy. As Lewis admits in a grief observed, quote, what grounds has Joy's death, his wife's death, given me for doubting all that I believe? We were even promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accepted it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to one's self, not to others. And in reality, not in the imagination. In a grief observer, when Lewis seeks out that paradoxical experience created by divine goodness and love, he finds only divine rejection. When he follows his theodicy and he thinks that that megaphone of pain should drive him toward God, he explains, uh, and that's me speaking and editorializing on the article. This is, this is Lewis. Go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, 
silence. The author continues, though his life would never be the same, Lewis works through his grief, gradually finding some resolution. Perhaps most significantly, Lewis realizes that the unrestrained plaintive cries of the sufferer can drown out God's voice, even when that voice is projected through the megaphone described in the problem of pain. In a passage that marks an important shift in a grief observed, Lewis achieves yet another hardened insight, this time one that brings him comfort. I have gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. Was it my own frantic need that slammed it in my face? The time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just the time when God can't give it. You are like the drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. Perhaps your own reiterated cries deafen you to the voice you hoped to hear. What brought Lewis some sense of solace was the resolution that, or the realization that he could be healed by God if he would stop railing against God. And he would realize one of the unique beauties of Christianity, that Jesus is one who walks with us through suffering, and he is no stranger to suffering. We serve a God who has not asked us to do something he has not also done. The journal article wraps this up beautifully with this. In book one of the Chronicles of Narnia, the magician's nephew, for example, young Diggory Kirk, pleads with Aslan to give him something that will cure his dying mother. As Lewis narrates, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up till then, he'd been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in the despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and, wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were... Such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion, now listen to this, must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. I want to be clear that ultimately we don't know what's going on in Taylor Swift's life. We can only speculate based on her public statements about God and her relationship with him. But I want to leave you with three things to keep in mind based on Taylor's story and that of C.S. Lewis. One, it's good to learn how Christians answer this question during a time when suffering is more external. Because when you're in personal suffering, it's hard to remain objective and hear God. Two, no matter how confident in God's faithfulness you might be, difficult times may come. They have even rocked well-known Christian thinkers. And three, hold on to Jesus. He has suffered too. His tears over your pains may be bigger than your own. Just a little while back, I was in Australia, and I was asked to speak in a pub one night in downtown Brisbane. And in the back, there were 100 people stuffed into a small room, atheist, Christian. There were uh, people from the LGBT community there. There was uh, just every kind of person present. And I was answering questions on the fly as they were coming about Christianity alongside someone named Max, a new friend of mine. And he puts this so beautifully. I'd like to close this video with sharing his words with you. Why do you think he kept his scars? You think he just couldn't handle that? He kind of got raised from the dead, but the scars were just a bit too much? Not enough power? Scars were just a bit beyond the specialty? Of course not. It's God himself, right? This is the God who's splitting oceans apart. He's raising people from the dead. He's giving people their sight back. You think he can't handle some scars? 
He kept his scars because he knew that we would forget about what he did for us and why he is a God who is with us through the suffering. A God who suffered for us and now, if we are willing to accept his offer of relationship, he's willing to suffer with us. Every other worldview will give you some theory on how to avoid suffering, how to ignore suffering, or how to get around it. Jesus is really straight with us. He says, no, you're broken and the world is still broken, so there's going to be suffering. Take my hand, we're going through it. Trust me, I've already been there. 